Jesus said that, that the cares of this world and just the stuff of life can enter into your life. And even though you're not trying to, it can begin to choke off your spirituality. All of a sudden, it's hard to go to church. It's hard to want to pray. It's hard. You're disappointed all the time. Heartache gets in, and you just start getting choked off. And Jesus said, you can even have a pretty regular life. You know, you, you regulate your life. You believe the right things. You do the right things. But you're doing it kind of externally, habitually, but your heart's not in it. And the scripture says, you know, I, I don't want what you do. I want your heart. The reason we do what we do is to bring our hearts. But if we don't bring our hearts, then our, mouth, our mouths may be saying things, but our hearts are far from him. God doesn't like that. That's why Jesus said to the early church in one of his visitations through this vision that we have record of in Revelations. He says, I know you guys are intolerant of, Ill, you know, of error and you, you don't say yes to evil people that are trying to control uh, the church and you're trying to get things right and you're trying to practice right things, but I have this against you. You've lost something. Your first love. First love. Innocent, hopeful, expectant. That first love's like chasing a little. You ever see a little kid chase a butterfly? They're so caught up with the butterfly, they go right out in the street and get killed. They're just chasing the butterfly. I mean, if you've got, you got a baby, a little kid chasing a butterfly, you better watch them because they'll fall in a well. They're completely ignorant of all danger because they're chasing the butterfly. See, there's something about chasing the butterfly that we don't care about what it costs us, what we lose, what we gain, whether we get run over or fall in a well or get to the mountaintop. It doesn't matter to us. We're following Jesus and we are just flat in love with him. That's first love stuff. Well, it's easy to lose that, right? And one of the things that thinking about the return of Christ does is it sort of recaptures that. And so that's why I want to talk about it. Uh, we open it up. Um, and I, I, let me say one more caveat before I, I jump into this. And that is, I'm going to talk about it, I think, in a little different way than maybe if you were brought up as an evangelical charismatic, that many of you are, how you thought about it. So just open up a little. Just open up and, 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 and give some room for some new thought about thinking about the return of Christ, because I think this will help us. So Acts chapter 1, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. This is right before <laughs> he's standing in front of them. It's after the resurrection, and they've seen him do crazy things like go through walls and disappear and appear and stuff, so they're used to him messing around. So he's standing right in front of them, and he starts floating. The dude starts floating. Okay, this is what it said. And after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hit them from their sight. They're going up there. They're just looking. They're wanting to come back. What are you going to do? Do flips? What are you doing? Right? They're used to messing with him. And it says they were looking up, and suddenly these two guys, presumably angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here looking into the sky? Watch. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you see him going to heaven. So the message is clear. The biblical claim is clear, and it was clear from the very start of the church. And that is, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> when I first came to faith in Jesus, I used to hang with this group where we talked a lot about his return. We used to pass out these fake newspapers, Jesus Christ returns. <laughs> Literally, 
and we'd grab them and we'd pass them out in street corners. I'd pass these out to thousands of people. We used to, every summer, we'd go and travel with this tent group that we'd go from town to town, and we'd just pass these things out, and Jesus is coming. Jesus. We were so convinced Jesus was coming back in 1972, or 1971, 72. We were so convinced he was coming. We were part of the Jesus movement, as it was called, that uh, we thought you can't get, even get a job. That would be just sin to get a job. So we just lived by faith off of other people. I'll never forget never forget when somebody asked me one time. We, in fact, these very papers, I was buying thousands of them. And they said, how do you pay for it? And I said to them, you know, the Lord provides. And my dad, who was a physician, pulled me aside. He was a Buddhist, I mean, a, a, a Muslim. And uh, he, he came to Christ later. But he pulled me aside after he heard me say that. And he said, uh, Edwin. That's my name, Edwin. Only Gail calls me Edwin, so don't call me Edwin. Or we'll have a problem. But uh, she, he, he, my dad goes, Edwin. I said, yeah. He said, uh, when do I stop getting to be the Lord? Because <laughs> he paid for him. <clears throat> anyway, um, <laughs> so we, we didn't get jobs. We didn't think about going to college. You just don't go to college. I mean, you just have to stay on fire. Jesus is coming. Get as many people into the kingdom you can and just preach to them. So we were, we were on fire with this notion. Uh, the problem was we were convinced he was coming the next year or two. That was 40 years, over 40 years ago now. <laughs> when you first hear about it, though, got to be honest, this whole Jesus is coming last day prophecy thing where they start picking prophecies out of the Bible and grabbing the uh, New York Times or the Jerusalem Post and they start putting them together like a, you know, kind of like a reading tea leaves. Um, it's kind of fascinating. And, and it sort of captures your attention, at least for a bit. And John, who wrote about this, talked about how, how this even discussion would, would do something in us. He said in 1 John 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we, sh- what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, it's, it's, it's going to mess with us. We're going to be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's something about the law of likeness. It's this notion that the clearer you see Jesus, the more you're like him. That's why we pray. That's why we read scripture because we have, we see glimpses of him. In, in the next, next month, we talk about the season of epiphany. You know what an epiphany is? It's like when you go, aha, it's, it's like a movie is going, there's three or four stories going, you don't quite get what's going on. All of a sudden, at a point in the movie, you go, oh, aha. It's like, oh yeah, that's what's happening. It, whenever you get an aha moment in your relationship with God through prayer, through study, it's you see him and you're changed. That's why we do that stuff. That's why we come to church when you go, oh, when anything turns on in your head, the minute you see him, you're like him. You're more like him. And he says, when he appears, aha. <laughs> Sweet. You get it. So uh, it, it says that we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. See, this does something to us to think about Christ's return. It causes us to want to get serious about our lives. The whole idea that we're going to see Jesus is so wonderful. Uh, And it's very cool that we don't have to just live by faith, that we're actually going to see him face to face. It's sweet news, but there are problems. And the problem The major problem with this whole discussion, I think, has to do with one thing that Jesus warned us about. It's when people try to attach a specific time to his return. It messes with us and then makes us 
mad. <laughs> as far back as you can go historically into the church. I'm just doing a church history thing. And way back in the first century already, or second century already, there were people trying to figure out when Jesus was coming. They figured it out in actual number of years and had dates that they had planned. And so people have been pounding their fists declaring when Jesus is going to return and that he's going to return in their day and time with absolute certainty. Revelations 22 and verse 20. This is the second to the last verse in the whole Bible. And here's what it says. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And then the writer responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So here's this ancient text saying, yes, I am coming soon. So that's like 2,000 years ago. For most of us, our idea of soon doesn't seem to fit the one being proffered here. Soon and very soon, we are going. They wrote that 2,000 years ago. <laughs> but maybe that's the point. Maybe, maybe the, the, what, what, what I think God may be saying to us is that the whole sense of time, maybe out of God's sense of time, is outside of our sense of time. That soon for God doesn't mean soon for us. And that we should never get caught in the time of it. Maybe that's why Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he said, no, about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He, what he's saying is don't get caught up in the day of the hour. Don't try to figure this out. Well, people say, well, I'm not trying to give you the exact hour, the exact day necessarily. Some try, you know, especially if they've got a, you know, the, you know, the ones that try to do this, there was someone that tried to do it this year. They're usually, if you dig in a little bit, I'll tell you who they are. They're engineers. They're mathematicians. They're these people that the world is exact. I've got to figure it out. We just got to figure it out. I mean, I'm not against engineers, but dude, stay in your field. Make airplanes work. Stay away from theology. For the love of God and all that's holy. But see, they, they, these people claim that, well, well, you know, we don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the season. And I feel like the seasons are coming. I've got, I mean, just look at this particular Bible. We've got Magog and Gog and... <laughs> and then the numbers, if you put together the numbers and you could, you know, the name... This particular God's name, who was it that they recently said? I think it was Bill Clinton was the last time I heard about it. I'm sure it says, Bill Clinton, if you take his name and you just give it a numerical uh, uh, assignments and you just add up the numbers of his name and it's 666. Bill Clinton's, he might be an antichrist. I, you know, I'm making fun because honestly, I have a problem with this. I, I wonder if people that think this way, if they... I can't figure out how they can think that way and still remember to breathe. <laughs> but, but I think, I don't think that what God is after is us to try to figure out a time or a specific kind of, see, what I think he's saying is that the season is any time. I think when the, when the cat got out of the bag, in Revelations, or earlier, you t listen to Paul. You read, you, I'm telling you, you read the New Testament, you cannot get away, walk away with the idea that he's not coming, like right pretty quick. It's pregnant with that sense. It's that imminent. It's imminent. Why? I don't think they were trying to say, they were trying to attach a time to it as much as they were living in a particular expectation, like every Jew. 
from the Genesis narrative when it said this Messiah is going to come that's going to crush the head of Satan and, and that somehow is going to bring redemption. That this idea for thousands of years, every generation thinking, it could be now, it could be now, it could be now, it could be now. And that kind of hope, it defined them. I think that's what he's calling. I think precisely the point is that it somehow informs our lives. But there are folks who want to say, yeah, yeah, but it, it could really, really happen really, 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 really soon. And again, they, they grab Bible verses and they try to throw them together or they try to put it all together. Some of you might remember this. Some of you that are really old. Uh, 1988, there's a book that came out called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. This book literally sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And we had people on the, in our community when I was pastoring in Wisconsin who were buying this, giving them to their friends and family. And tell, you know, this makes us read it. He, he was an engineer, by the way. And I remember, you know, by this time, I was a little jaded on all this timing stuff. I mean, I love Jesus' return, but I just wasn't quite honest. I, I don't know. I, I told the community, and they got mad at me. A number of them did. I said, you know, guys, I mean, I appreciate you reading this book, but I'm telling you, I got plans for 1989. <laughs> and sure enough, 1989 came, and you know what the guy wrote? 89 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1989. I'm not kidding you. Didn't sell nearly as well. See, see, the problem is, is that there were even people that pushed back from their faith on this because some talk about Jesus' return in Chicken Little fashion. Remember Chicken Little? He caught something out of the side of his eye. He said, sky's falling! Sky's falling! And then, you know, Chicken Little finds Henny Penny and Cocky Locky and Goosey Pussy, and they got this whole movement going. That's what happens. And then after you're done with it, it's kind of like the flu. Ever get hit with the flu? It hits you hard. Lasts for a while, and then it's gone. And you feel worse after. Right? That, that's what happens. I'm telling you, in my experience, when you present the return of Christ in that last chance store deal, uh, it always yields a very small return. And yet the New Testament says he's coming and we need to think about it. So why? What's the right way to think about it? I think we find an answer in 2 Timothy 4. He's, Paul says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Longed for His appearing. God wants us to cultivate a longing to see the one that we have only seen by faith. To actually think about we're actually going to see Him that he's going to appear. It messes with us in a very formative way, not unlike it messed with Israel to think about Messiah coming. It forms us. The early Christian leaders, they knew, they knew that, that when they talked about his imminent return, that if generation after generation passed, that people would get skeptical. But they still talked about it as always coming today. And we see that. This is in Second Peter, this idea of knowing that if generations passed, it, people would scoff at it. It says in 2 Peter 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, well, where is this coming that's supposed to be soon that he promised? Ever, ever since our ancestors died, they've been talking about that. Every, everyone, everything goes on just like it's been since the beginning of creation. So they knew this. And yet, they still talked about his coming. But what they 
did in doing it, they were after something else. Not after locking in with your head into figuring out Bible obscure verses with actual, you know, news reports, that kind of thing. That's so, if you, well, I'm not even getting into it. Not even going down there. Listen to Saint Ephraim. This this guy Ephraim. He he's from 258. This is a third century. Smart dude. Dead dude. Smart dude. Quote: To prevent his disciples, he's talking about Jesus, from asking the time of his coming, Christ said, "About that hour, no one knows, neither the angels nor the Son. It is not for you to know the times or the moments. He has kept those things hidden, so that we may keep watch." Each of us thinking that he will come in our own day. If he had revealed the time of his coming, his coming would have lost its savor, its power. It would no longer be an object of yearning for the nations and the age in which it will be revealed. He promised that he would come, but did not say when he would come, so that all generations and ages await him eagerly. He goes on. Though the Lord has established the signs of His coming, (coughs) the time of their fulfillment has not been plainly revealed. These signs have come and they've gone with a multiplicity of change. More than that, they're still present. His final coming is like the first. Before I go there, let me say this. I I can't tell you, every time I hear, you know, somebody say, well, you know, earthquakes, we've had like, Bazillions of earthquakes are just, I just saw a statistic, you know, bazillions of earthquakes in the last time. I think, first of all, we've only been measuring them for 100 years. How do you know that in 90 A.D. or, you know, 1020 A.D. that uh, there weren't five times more than right now? You don't know. But see, we, we have this line. Find something that proves it. Find something that proves it. It's really close. That's, that's we should be finding the proof inside us that it's really, really close because he said, I'm coming back. That's what he's saying here. Don't, all these, let me start it again. All these, the Lord has established the signs, but these signs have come and gone with a multiplicity of change. And more than that, they're still present. His final coming is going to be just like his first. Holy men and prophets waited for him, thinking that he would reveal himself in their own day. The scripture talks about how the prophets would see it and think, is it now? So today, each of the faithful longs to welcome him in his own day because Christ has not made plain the day of his coming. One more paragraph. He has not made it plain for this reason especially, that no one may think that he whose power and dominion rule all numbers and all times is ruled by some fate and time. He described the signs of his coming. How could what he has himself decided be hidden from him? Therefore, he used these words to increase respect for the signs of his coming so that from that day forward, 2,000 years ago, all generations and ages might think that he would come again in their own day, end quote. Smart guy. What he's saying is, this idea of his coming is formative to us. It's not to make it, make it a, a, a doodad or some kind of a intellectual play but it's something formative in our souls that we think about that he could come now. Paul said in Titus 2, he said, for the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to everybody. It teaches us to say no to stuff and yes to stuff, no to ungodliness, worldly passions, yes to self-controlled, upright, godly lives while we wait for the blessed 
hope. It's called the blessed hope. Why is it blessed? Because it messes with us in a good way. The blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus who gave himself up for us to redeem us from wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. See, if you want to maintain a vibrant faith, if you want to be thinking about zealousness of good works, if you want to be eager in your life to live with purpose and intention, you've got to put the Jesus that's coming into the mix. You've got to think about it. You, you've got to jump into it, and somehow when you do that, it begins to get you encouraged to live your life in a way that honors God. And then lastly, Jesus' return also speaks to a reality that all of us know but we don't like to talk about, and that's this. There's an ache inside all of us. Every one of us in this room, there's an ache. And what we think is, if I just, if my life would have just been better, if I could just make it better, that ache will leave. We don't understand that we're in the world of the ache, that there's wonderful good in this world. I'm so glad for good. But if you had everything perfect, you're still in the land of the suck. If you had perfect parents and perfect spouses and perfect brothers and sisters and that sister of yours wasn't a relative of the Antichrist <laughs> and everything was just right and your whole life you've never been rejected and all, you'd still be achy. There'd still be something in you that thinks, oh, something's wrong. Why? Because you're living in a fallen world and you're a fallen person and you're not going to be fulfilled until he comes. And, and what, this is where sin finds root in us because we think, man, if, if, if I just had more stuff, maybe I think I'd feel better. And so we get caught up in the chasing of stuff. We're aching, but we turn the ache into the chase. We think more, 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 more. And we chase things, hoping that if we get it, we'll feel better. We're like those greyhounds chasing those little rabbits, fake rabbits on the thing. And, and, and the, whoever's controlling that keeps it close enough to think, if we just keep trying hard, we'll get it. If it gets too far, we'll stop. So it just stays right there. We think we're going to get it. We don't get it. And, 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 and so, so we just, for some reason, we think to ourselves, whenever the ache comes, well, maybe I just, I'll just eat, if I just eat that pie, I'll just feel better. Or I just, I'll just go buy a couch. I always feel better when I buy a couch. Or, I don't know where you hide. All of us hide somewhere. There's things we do that are inappropriate that we find some sense of release in it, some sense of peace in it. But it doesn't last long. In fact, it expands the ache. We forget we're in a broken world and that we are broken people. We forget. We forget Solomon, who was the richest king on the planet, man, they used to pile silver out in Jerusalem during his reign because it wasn't worth anything. And they'd pay everyone else in the known world with silver for their horses. They paid with silver for their ships. They paid with silver. <laughs> they kept the gold because silver was pretty much worthless to them. But they had it piled up. And you read Ecclesiastes, a great depressing book to read. Because Solomon is basically saying, I did everything I could have ever hoped to do. Anything I wanted. Every desire I had, I gave myself over to it. He had great wisdom. He built great municipal projects. He had every, just anything, any of the delights of a man, he said, anything he wanted. And he said, when I got it all, it just made me feel worse. 
He said, it's all meaningless. Vanity of vanities. Meaningless. What does that tell you? You're in a world where you need water that doesn't exist here. That's what the psalmist said. I'm in a land, a dreary dreary land, where there is no water. There is a water you long for that's eternal. And if you had everything right, you're never going to be quenched until you tasted it. We taste it a little when we enter into moments with God. That's why you feel peace. You just take it a little bit. But you know when we really enter in it? When He returns. So imagine. Imagine if the longing for His return is really identifying the ache that's already for Him. Imagine when you're aching for the pie. You go, you know, I got this ache and I usually go for the pie, but Lord, I've, I've, I'm getting smarter. This ache for this pie is really an ache for you. I'm longing for your return. I'm longing to see your face. And somehow in that little exchange, something happens that's formative to you spiritually that actually builds up passion for Christ, makes you fall in love with Jesus again, keeps you out of so much crud, or as my son said, crap. Just quoting, it was a quotable. And life gets sweeter. What if that ick you feel, that loneliness you feel, that ache you feel, that you think, God, will you just fix this? Give me a better job. I, just, I need to get married. I need to get unmarried. I need to have children. I need to get rid of these children. What if it's all a lie? Because if you had everything, you're still Mr. Achy, you're still Miss Achy. And what if you would begin to say, Come, Lord Jesus, I need you. And let that form your soul. I just think you'd have a happier Advent.